Thank you for the joy we have in knowing you and in worshiping you and how intimately you desire to be a part of our lives. And we pray, Jesus, just as we consider your word together this morning, that you would give it life and that it would speak to us, penetrating between soul and spirit, bone and marrow, to reveal the truth of God to us. We ask this in your name, King Jesus. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Good morning to those of you who are joining us online this morning. It's wonderful to be here together with you. And I want to say thank you to the worship team and uh, to Aki and Alan. Thank you guys for, for just bringing what God is laying on your heart. Um, and John for doing a wonderful job in leading us. If you have been with us last week, you will know that we're starting a new series in the Gospel of John called Seeing Jesus, Know, Believe, and Live. And uh, if you were here last week, you will know that Roland did the first five verses of chapter one and left the last 46 for me to pick up today. So strap in, we're going to be here a little while. I'm just kidding. I made that joke at the A2. Uh, we, John chapter 1 breaks down into, into roughly three parts. And the first part of John chapter 1 is the intro that goes from verses 1 to verse 18. And then there's a bit of an interaction between John and some of the Jewish leaders where they ask him who he is. Are you the Messiah? Um, and, and John works it out. Just to note, John the Baptist that we meet in that part of John chapter 1 is different to John the Apostle that wrote the gospel. So just bear that in mind. And then finally, the last half... The last third of John chapter 1 runs from verses 29 to 51, and it's where Jesus meets the men who will ultimately become his first disciples. That's the section of John's gospel that we're going to look at together this morning. And uh, I don't know, I mean, I asked this at the 8, and there were a few people that were able to, to say they'd done this. Has anyone read A Tale of Two Cities? Right, it's quite a famous book, as a few of you. I haven't read this book, but as we read this chapter, you're going to see it's a little bit like the tale of two stories. And there's, there's the story of what actually happens. Jesus goes out, he meets John the Baptist, John introduces him to some of his disciples, and Jesus engages with those disciples, and they go out and engage with some of their friends and go on a little bit of a journey together. And we're going to have a look at that, and God is, God is at work in that, and I think there's something for us to see as we look at that and read that together. But then there's a second story that's in, superimposed on the first story. And so as we're reading the story of Jesus meeting his disciples, God has worked through the Apostle John to communicate something about who Jesus is and is going to reveal that to us as we look at and consider that, those interactions. In this story, we're going to find that Jesus is revealed by seven titles that are given to him by first John the Baptist, then some of the disciples, and then finally Jesus himself, so that by the time we get to the end of the story, the Apostle John, and through God's inspiration, is going to have revealed to us a, a snapshot, an introduction of the fullness of who Jesus is as he comes and as he lives out his ministry. And so we're going to see that as we read through the, the chapter together. I invite you to look for those as we go through. This is also something of an introduction to a theme in John's writing. So as John writes his gospel, you will notice that in two other places, he uses sevens as quite a significant way in the way in which he communicates. So in John's gospel, for instance, there are only seven miracle stories. Unlike if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there are a lot more miracles that you find in those gospels. In John, there are only seven. 
and each of them is called a sign. The reason is, because John wrote, if you remember, that you would see Jesus and that you would know him as the Son of God, the Messiah, and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. And so each miracle that's recorded, John calls a sign because he wants you to see in the miracle. The miracle isn't there so you can be like, wow, that was a lot of bread. The miracle is there so you can see, wow, Jesus is the Son of God who made it happen. Each miracle is designed to point back to Jesus. In John's gospel, you'll see there are seven times that Jesus claims the divine name, the name that was revealed in Exodus chapter 3, God in the burning bush. And Moses asks, who should I say sent me? God says, the I am sent you. God reveals, he says, this is my everlasting name, my name for all generations. This name was sacred to the Hebrew people. In John's gospel, Jesus claims this name and uses it of himself seven times. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There are five others. Each time he does this, he's revealing something of who he is to us. So you're going to see John does this in sevens. Those sevens happen spaced out throughout John's gospel. The seven titles we're going to find today are located right here in chapter 1 and designed to introduce us to the fullness of the picture that Jesus is going to become. All right. There's a a little aside that I'll share with you because I think it's kind of cool. In these seven titles, the first two are made by John the Baptist, who is quite a significant personage. Jesus says of John, he says, of all the men who have lived, John the Baptist is the greatest. So the, the, these titles come first from the greatest of all men who have lived. Then they come from his soon-to-be disciples, fishermen, people that are simple and not great in the way in which John is called great. And then they culminate with Jesus giving himself the last title. And I just thought that's a really lovely way in which John kind of connects. It goes from great to very average to great again. And, and John just uses even the structure of how those are shared to show you the greatness of Jesus. So... As we read the passage today, look out for those. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to read it together, and then we're going to focus in on the the things that actually happen, the conversations Jesus has with his soon-to-be disciples, and how he interacts with them, what that inspires in them, and how they respond to the things that Jesus says to them. And then we're going to pause, and we're going to allow God to just minister to us, and then we're going to look at the titles that they give to Jesus in these interactions, and what God wants to show us about who Jesus is as we look at those things. Does that make sense? Everyone good? Okay, let's read together John chapter 1, verses 29 to 51. The next day, John saw Jesus, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. It's a nice thought twister to get your head around. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them follow, and he asks, what do you guys want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you'll see. So they went, and they saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. 
It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him. You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day he decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, the one about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under a fig tree? You will see greater things than that. Then he added, very truly, I tell you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. It's John chapter 1, friends. So let's Let's look at it together. Let's start with the invitations that Jesus gives as he interacts with his disciples. And you might notice, if you've read the Gospels before, if you remember when you read the Gospels before, these interactions that we find here in John are quite different to the interactions we find with the first disciples in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Right? um, In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus encounters them. They're by a lake, and he says, come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And they leave their fish in their nets, and they immediately go, and they follow Jesus. Or they leave their tax booth and they immediately go and follow Jesus. What we have here in John's account is actually the very first time that Jesus met with the men who would become his disciples. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that's actually happening significantly later than what we're reading here in John's gospel. This is the very first time John and Jesus encounters these men. And you'll notice that he says something quite different to them. In verse 38, two of John's disciples ask Jesus where he's staying. I thought his answer was, was really interesting. You know, he doesn't, if someone asks me, where are you staying? It's, you know, it's quite a simple question. He, Jesus doesn't say, you know what, guys, I'm staying in the Marriott Hotel in Bethany. Where are you guys staying? You know, I mean, that would, have, that would have been how I would have answered the question, assuming, of course, that I did stay at a Marriott Hotel that existed in Bethany. And then we'd have a conversation about, you know, the quality of the hotels that we were staying in and the things that we had decided to do while we were in Bethany and have you gone to see the hot springs and the this and the that. And, you know, we'd have a nice chat about those things. It's not what Jesus decides to do. He knows that their interest is piqued. He knows they're talking to him because John the Baptist said something. They found that interesting, and so they're intrigued, and so they come to Jesus, and he plays right into that. He says, well, if you're interested, come and see. Come hang out with me. So he invites them to join into his world. And do you notice they end up spending a lot more time with him as a result? They, They spend the rest of the day with him, probably the evening as well, and it seems they're with him the next day. What could have been a five-minute conversation becomes a whole afternoon. What could have been a conversation about the places that they had gone to visit becomes an opportunity for deep relationship to get formed. The same is probably true of the conversation that Jesus has with Philip in verse 43 later. It's a similar connotation. He says, come and follow me, Philip. Come and hang out. Let's see how the day goes. It's it's simple. It's genuine. It's low-key. Jesus isn't asking these men in this moment, 
give up your livelihood, leave your families, come and be my disciple. That's not what's happening here. Jesus is going off to Galilee. It's about a three-day trek. And so he invites Philip and Simon and Andrew. He says, why don't you guys come and join me? It's an invitation, but, it, but it's also a stretch. He's like, I know we've just met, but, but why don't you, I'm going off to this place. It's like us meeting someone, and you end up spending a bit of an afternoon together. You have a coffee, and you're like, hey, look, I'm going to Somerset West tomorrow. You want to come with me? We're going on a road trip. Right? That's, kind of what, that's kind of what happens here. And in these interactions, we get a glimpse of the character of the king that we've chosen to follow. Do you notice that he's not forceful in the way in which he gathers his followers? Notice he creates invitations. He invites them to come and to join him, to come and enter into his world. And as we respond to him and as the disciples respond to him, they're going to see more and more of who he is. And that revelation of him is going to increase. And the same is true for us. These invitations, they also have an important flip side for us to see. Notice that these invitations of Jesus inspire the very first acts of evangelism. Remember these phrases? The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, Hey, Simon, we found the Messiah. And he brings him to Jesus. Philip found Nathaniel and told him, We found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Well, come and see, Philip says. Come and see. He repeats Jesus' own invitation back to Nathaniel. See, when we discover who Jesus is, our first reaction is to want to tell someone about it because we're a communal people. we people who live in community, and we love to share good news. Right? We love to share good news. What happens when, when someone gets engaged or when someone has a baby or, or someone gets a new job or, or they win a competition or something? We want to tell someone about it because we're excited. We want to share in that joy. In, in winter, I, I play hockey, which is going to start in about two weeks and, uh, and at least I'm going to play for one more season because I'm getting a little bit tired of running around after 18-year-olds on the field. When I get home from my hockey match, if we've won, I cannot wait to tell Glenda about the game. I can't wait to tell her how well we defended and how brilliantly we connected some moves together in order to get the guys to score a goal. And, of course, how instrumental I was into making sure all of that happens. Obviously, you know. But I'm much less enthusiastic to tell her if we've lost, which happened a lot last season. Friends, when we first got saved, that, that joy and that passion, it bubbled out of us. We couldn't help but talk about Jesus. I couldn't help but talk about Jesus. We probably frustrated the living daylights out of the people that were around us. And sometimes, sometimes that passion can fade a little bit over time. Even though the goodness of God has never changed. In fact, the longer we journey with Jesus, the more we see his goodness worked out in our lives. And yet somehow, sometimes that passion fades a bit. Philip and Andrew's reaction remind us that the right response to our daily encounter with our king is to share the great news of Jesus with those that we care about. Isn't the gospel still good news? Isn't it the best thing we've ever encountered? I want you to notice that come and see is not a confrontational challenge. It's not adversarial. It's not aggressive. It's just an invitation. Listen, I've met someone who is the greatest person I've ever met. It's the greatest encounter I've ever had. You want to come and meet him? Has that passion faded? Let's ask ourselves that question genuinely before the Lord. Lord, has our passion for you faded? 
Do we know that the gospel is good news, but we don't feel it as much anymore? Is there someone God might be wanting you to invite to come and see that the Lord is good? Let's pray for a moment. Jesus, we thank you that you are the greatest God in the world. There is no one like you. There's no other God like you. There is no one above you. There is no one who is your equal. You are the great and glorious King, and it is the greatest joy and privilege in our life to have met you and to have been invited into this love relationship with you. God, I pray for us. I pray for us, Lord, if, if our joy at our salvation and our meeting with you has, has grown a little bit stale, Lord, I pray for new life. I pray for new excitement. I pray for new fire. I pray for the joy of our salvation to rise up and bubble up within us as a people. I pray that we would find it difficult to stop talking about you because of how big and great you are in our lives. I pray, Lord, that, that even right now you would begin to highlight people that are in our lives that need to be invited to come and see to come and meet the King who is Jesus, the greatest person they might ever met. Me. We pray this, Lord, in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, friends, that's the first story in John chapter 1, very briefly. Right, that's the first story. That's Jesus going out. It's what happens. We're going to take a moment. We're going to look now at the second half of the story and the proclamations that are made about who Jesus is. And I want you to notice something about these proclamations. Some of you might remember a conversation that happens with uh, Caiaphas, the high priest, later on in John's gospel, in John chapter 11. Jesus has been arrested and always about to be arrested. Can't quite remember. And Caiaphas makes the following statement. He says, you guys, Sanhedrin, you know nothing at all. Do you not realize that it's better for us that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish? And then John comments, and he says, He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and to make them one. John's making a very interesting observation here. He's saying, guys, when Caiaphas made this statement, he spoke prophetically in a way that he didn't understand. So recognize Caiaphas was the, the guy leading the charge to arrest and murder Jesus. That, that was his goal. He didn't like Jesus. Jesus was a false prophet, a false Messiah, a man who claimed to be God but wasn't, was therefore guilty of blasphemy, was leading the Jewish people astray, needed to be arrested and killed. And the reason he needed to do that was if he was allowed to continue raising up followers, it was le going to lead to a revolt of the Jewish people, and the Romans were going to come down and clamp down on the Jewish religion. That was Caiaphas's concern. So he's like, guys, let's get rid of Jesus so the Romans don't take us out. And yet what he said, God imbues with a prophetic meaning that goes far beyond what he could understand. And as we look at it now, we know that what he said, what God meant through that, was that Jesus was going to die for the sins of broken and sinful people to redeem us out of a bondage to sin and slavery and restore us to God. That's what God was doing. The reason I bring that up is as we're going to look at these seven proclamations that are made about who Jesus is, all of them apart from Jesus... One, the one made by Jesus, are men speaking about things that they don't yet fully understand. And they're going to make a proclamation, and they're going to say something about who Jesus is. And God 
allowed them to say that and maybe even caused them to say that and caused John to record them for us so that he could show us in greater detail how Jesus is going to live into the fullness of all of these ideas. So they have these ideas in their head, and they've been developed through their Jewish background, and yet Jesus is going to fulfill those expectations and completely supersede them. And we are giving them now as an introduction to who Jesus is going to reveal himself to be as we go through the Gospel of John. Does that make sense? All right. So let's have a look together. The first proclamation of Jesus comes from the mouth of John the Baptist, and he makes it twice. First in verse 29, he says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Just an an aside, we're going to have to do this slightly quickly. We could spend a week on each of these titles, and we could unpack them because there's so much depth here. But we're going to do a, a little bit of an overview together this morning. He makes a statement in verse 29. He makes it again the next day. When we hear the phrase, the Lamb of God, I mean, we sang, Shirley, it was such a lovely song, I love that song, Worthy is the Lamb. When we hear the Lamb of God, we immediately have this association with Jesus. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the one who died for our sins. The culmination of Jesus' work on the cross is immediately associated for us with this idea of Jesus as the Lamb. But when John makes the statement, Jesus hasn't died, clearly, because he's there. Right? That hasn't happened yet. So what is in his mind when he makes the statement, the Lamb of God, he takes away the sin of the world? In the Old Testament, that phrase, the Lamb of God, it's not used as a title, but it has a collection of significant moments in, that in Israelite history where this idea of the Lamb of God exists. The first is perhaps Genesis chapter 22. It's Abraham and Isaac, and Abraham is going to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice to God in obedience to what God has commanded him. And they get up onto the mountain, and Isaac is strapped on the altar, and an angel appears and says, Whoa, here's a lamb. And the lamb is offered as a substitute for Isaac, as a sacrifice to God, and Isaac's life is spared. The next one happens, Exodus chapter 12. The Israelite people are are in captivity. They're in Egypt, and God is about to redeem them out of slavery and restore them. And so each family is called to sacrifice a lamb and to paint the blood of the lamb over their doorposts, and the angel of death passes over. It's a picture of the mercy of God through the sacrifice and the offering of the lamb. Then we go on to the next book in Leviticus chapter 16, a beautiful chapter of Scripture which speaks about how God created a way for His people to be purified of sin in the Old Testament. And so after a long festival and a long ceremony, the high priest would go and speak all the sins of the people for the last year over a goat. And once he had finished proclaiming the sins of the people over the goat, the goat would be let out of the camp and it would be left to wander into the wilderness to take away the sins of the people. It's symbolic of the carrying away of sin, but it's a goat. Lastly, in Jeremiah chapter 11, Jeremiah speaks of the gentle lamb, the servant of God who is led like a lamb to be slaughtered. Speaking of himself as the prophets and ultimately of Jesus who would come. In all of these pictures, you, you see this theme of, of sacrifice. It's prominent, but none of them, none of them really fit perfectly. The, the lamb was offered for Isaac. Isaac's life was saved, but there was no sin involved. There wasn't, there wasn't an atoning for sin, nor did the Passover lamb atone for sin. It redeemed them out of bondage. The, the goat in Leviticus 16 redeems the people of sin, but it's not a lamb. It's a goat. 
And in Jeremiah 29, you have an unwitting lamb that's being led to the slaughter. But it doesn't pay the price for sin. It's just punished. But in what John does, when he sees Jesus and he calls him out, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he makes a prophetic proclamation. He calls that which is not yet, and he says that it is now come. It is now true. Jesus is now the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. It's a statement that he makes by the Spirit of God, where the essence of all of these Old Testament pictures that all of his Jewish hearers would know about, and he draws on them, and he brings them together, and he says they are now made full, they are made whole, they are made complete in Jesus. It's this beautiful picture for us of how Jesus fulfills the promises of the Old Testament. Jesus is the greatest and the fullest revelation of God. And the Old Testament was able to see God in part, but Jesus is the fullness of God revealed in the New Testament. Now we see Jesus as the Lamb of God. We see Jesus, the Savior of the world, the one who brings an end to the bondage of sin and death, the one who has triumphed over the grave, and the one who by his death redeemed people from every nation, tribe, and tongue and called them his own. It's Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. It's a beautiful opener. It's the first picture God wants us to see of Jesus. John writes for us to see of Jesus. The second one is this. It's a title that, that John the Baptist bestows on Jesus again. It's called God's Chosen One. We see it in verse 34. I have seen and I testify to you. I tell you this is God's Chosen One. This title comes from Isaiah chapter 42, a prophetic passage about the servants of the Lord. God says in Isaiah 42, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. It's from John an acknowledgement of the messianic role that Jesus would begin to play in Israel. A role that was characterized by the empowering of the spirit and the bringing of justice to the nations. And again, with hindsight, we're going to see how Jesus fulfilled those expectations in a much fuller way. And we're going to look at the messianic part of that in a little bit because it's going to overlap with one of the titles that comes later. But I want you to consider the significance of the servant being filled with the Spirit. Because in the Old Testament, there were many leaders and many prophets who had the Spirit of God on them and who did their ministry under the anointing and the power of the Spirit of God. But none of them were able to do it as perfectly as Jesus. And none of them were able to take the Spirit that they had received and release it to others. They didn't have that prerogative except perhaps Elijah. But in John chapter 20, again, we'll see it later, Jesus breathes on his disciples, and he says to them what? Receive the Holy Spirit. Not only did Jesus do his ministry in the fullness of the Spirit, but he was so in the Spirit and so full of the Spirit and had the authority to take the Spirit that God had given him and to give it as a gift to others. And he ultimately will fulfill the prophecy of Joel that the Spirit has now come on all flesh, on men and women, sons and daughters, old and young. God has now poured out through Jesus the Spirit onto everyone. So again in Jesus we see the fullness of God's promise come into being. The third title that gets ascribed to Jesus, comes from the lips of one of John's disciples. He's unnamed at this point. And he says to Jesus, Rabbi, where are you staying? He calls him Rabbi. In the first century, 
Judaism, the term rabbi hasn't yet become a formal title that defines someone in terms of their training and their ordination. They've been through this school and they're now a rabbi. Rather, it's a term of respect. It's an acknowledgement of someone's ability to, to teach with wisdom their piety in life. And at the moment, this disciple has no idea that he's speaking to the man who will become the greatest of all teachers that the world has ever seen. The the man whose words will endure and define continents and empires for millennia into the future. He's seen Jesus and he's seen something in him. Jesus himself will later declare that anyone who listens to his teaching is like a wise man. And that his teaching is the best foundation you will ever find to build your life upon. No one else's words will ever compare to Jesus' words. Peter says to Jesus later on, he says, Lord, to whom will we go? You alone have the words of life. No one else, no other teacher, no other prophets, no other pastor will ever have the same words that Jesus has, that have the same power and the same life in them. My words are not nearly as good as Jesus' words. I'm not fit to untie the sandal that he wears. Only Jesus' words. What John's disciple realizes at a very surface level, Jesus again becomes the greatest fulfillment of. There is no one else in all the world and in all of history who has the world's words of life. No one else whose teaching has the power to set captives free and form an unshakable foundation for the lives of those who follow it. And the words of Jesus. Jesus is the quintessential teacher. Fourth title fourth picture of Jesus that we see in John is given by Andrew, and he, and he calls his brother to, to see this man that he's counted. He says, Simon, come and see. We have found the Messiah. That is the Christ. And interesting just to note, Jesus, his full name is not Jesus Christ. His full name is Jesus, the son of Joseph. Christ is a title that's associated to him and becomes a part of how he's referred to, but it's a title about his role, his messianic role. This proclamation from Andrew, you need to know it lands in the, in the context of great messianic expectation in occupied Israel. Israel is, is an occupied state. It's under Roman authority. We in South Africa know what that's like, where there's an authority that prevails upon a people group within its sphere of control, and it limits and controls and prevents them from expressing the fullness of life and culture. There's an oppression that exists for ancient Israel. And the prophets in the Old Testament, they began to develop this idea that a Messiah must come who will set Israel free from the oppression that they experience at a political level. That's what the people began to expect. As God began to speak of a Savior that would come, that started once Israel had been taken into exile in their history. Then there began to be a people that were ruled and led by others. And God began to release this promise. There's a Messiah who is coming, and he will be of David's royal line, and he will set you free. And there will be a new life and a new kingdom. And they're expecting someone who's going to come and redeem them from the rule of the Romans and set them free from the oppression that they're experiencing and restore the kingly line of David. They were anticipating a return to the golden age. That was the age that existed under the rule of King Solomon. You remember David's first son? Under Solomon, the kingdom of Israel was as big as it ever got. Israel was subject to no one. Kings and queens from all around the nations came and paid homage to Solomon and gave him tributes that are staggering. That's what they're waiting for. 
That's the picture of Messiah. The Messiah is someone who's going to take our nation outside of this political control. He's going to overthrow our oppressors and we're going to reestablish the fullness of the kingdom of Israel with a king on the throne where we are going to be the supreme nation in the area. That's what they're waiting for. But again, this expectation falls short of the fullness that we find in Jesus. The Jewish expectation of Messiah failed to recognize there was a problem that was deeper than political oppression. That they as a people were in subjugation to sin that kept them falling short of God's standards. And so they kept receiving punishments because they were unable to live a life of righteousness. They failed to recognize that even if a Messiah restored the kingly line of David and the nation returned to the golden age, that eventually it would inevitably fall back into sin and the resulting judgment because the people's hearts were sinful. They were in need of a Messiah who would not just save them from political occupation, but who would redeem them from their bondage to sin. As we know, Jesus was that Messiah. No one else could have accomplished what he did. And not just for Israel. Jesus does it for the whole world. Jesus was the Messiah that the world needed. He was the Messiah that I needed. He was the Messiah that you needed. And he supersedes Andrew's proclamation in a way that he couldn't even begin to contemplate. But that we get to begin to see now. It's the fourth picture of Jesus. The fourth title that he is Messiah. The fifth title that we see is actually a bonus title. It's not actually technically part of the seven, and it's there because it creates a counterpoint to highlight that for us. And it's this. It's Jesus, the son of Nazareth, um, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. In all of the other titles that we see in this description, they highlight the greatness and the deity and the supremacy of Christ and of Jesus. This one does exactly the opposite. It grounds Jesus in Nazareth, in the, in the lowest of places in Israel. Je- Nazareth was not a place that was well thought of, although apparently the inhabitants of Nazareth thought they were pretty great. But it's a little bit like driving down the N7 and going past the tunnel to Gravate. And you think, just does anything lacquer ever come out of Gravate? I had the privilege of meeting a guy in seminary from Gravate. He was a lacquer. So he was a good guy that came from Gravate. But that's the significant, it's a tiny, it's a two-street town. There's nothing going on there. Like, does anything good come out of Nazareth? And yet Jesus is called Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus of Nazareth. He, these, this title is given to us to show the, the, the low, Jesus was willing to be associated with the lowest of the low so that you could see the greatness of his glory in comparison. And it's brought into the series of titles to help highlight how significant the other titles are and how humble our king is that he would be willing to associate with anyone, no matter what form and spectra, section of life you come from, what social strata you fit into, how much food is on your table at the end of the month, Jesus is willing to associate with anyone even though he is the Lamb of God, the Chosen One, the greatest teacher, the superlative Messiah, and we're about to see he's the Son of God, the King of Israel, and the Son of Man. Jesus is not above humbling, not above humbling himself, being born as a man of Nazareth, of the line of Joseph. And so this title here exists to highlight the greatness and the goodness and the graciousness of the Jesus that we serve. 
the next two titles, the fifth and the sixth title, they appear together in the proclamation of Nathaniel in verse 29. He says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. This is a really remarkable proclamation, and the, their truth goes far beyond what Nathaniel understands or intends. See, the two statements are made together because in Nathaniel's mind, they're linked. In the Old Testament, the royal line of David was linked with the idea of being kind of adopted under God's personal care. So you can see that illustrated in passages like 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. God promises David for his son. He says, I will be his father, and he will be my son. Psalm 2, verse 7, which is written by David, says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. It's this picture of the special relationship that God has chosen to give to the kingly line of David. This is the idea that's in Nathaniel's mind. When he declares Jesus to be the promised Messiah, the ancestor of David, who will become the king of Israel, and he will thus experience God's special adoption. But he doesn't realize how truly he speaks. Jesus will go on, and we'll see as we go through John's gospel together, how deep that picture of sonship is. How intimate that picture of the son and the father becomes. In fact, it gets so interconnected. The closeness is so great that in John chapter 10, after claiming that he is the son of God and that the father is his father, the the Pharisees have a big issue with Jesus. And so Jesus says, for which of my good works do you want to stone me? And they say, we're not stoning you for any of the works that you've done, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God because you have chosen to call yourself the son of the father. That's what Jesus would go on to reveal. Nathaniel also doesn't realize how truly Jesus is the king of Israel. You'll remember later on when Jesus is about to be crucified, he has this conversation with Pilate, and he says, Pilate, what you don't understand is my kingdom is not of this world. And if I wanted to, I could call down legions of angels, and they would set me free from your captivity. In fact, you have no authority over me except that which has been given to you from above. Yet God ensured that we had this proclamation recorded for us so we could be introduced early on to the fullness of who Jesus really is, and that we would see him as he would finally be. Jesus is the Son of God, the King of Israel. Finally, we get the proclamation of Jesus himself about himself. He calls himself the Son of Man. And this is the culmination of all the titles that have been ascribed to him throughout this chapter. It climaxes in this one. If you've spent much time reading the Gospels, you'll notice that Jesus uses this phrase to refer to himself more than any other phrase. This is his self-designated title stamp. This is his name badge if he had to put it on himself at a group meeting. Verse 51, very truly I say to you, you'll see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And in this statement, Jesus desires to draw us back to two Old Testament images. The first happens to Jacob in Genesis chapter 28. It's Jacob's ladder where the the angels of God ascend and descend. Heaven opens and Jacob gets this vision of angels ascending and descending this ladder coming down to him. The second is from Daniel chapter 7, where there's one like the Son of Man who comes. And both of these allusions work together to emphasize the divine authority that Jesus is claiming. So here's what you need to see. Jacob, Jacob was the, one of the fathers of the Jewish faith. Right? Yahweh was known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
And it was Jacob's experience in Genesis chapter 28 that became for him, it was an authoritative confirmation of his role as God's representative on earth. And so it functions for us here when Jesus uses it as a promise to his earthly disciples. He says to them in the same way that God established Jacob and you acknowledge him as father, so God is going to establish me. And it's a challenge to the whole Jewish people. Because if you believe that Jacob was divinely established by God, then you need to believe that God is going to divinely establish me as well. And then he connects that to this vision in Daniel chapter 7, where one like a son of man, it's a, it's a figure that's closely associated to someone that Daniel calls the ancient of days. It's a picture of the father sitting on the throne in heaven. It reads this in, in verses 13 and 14. In my vision, Daniel says, at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All the nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. When Jesus uses the title Son of Man to describe himself, he is claiming authority and dominion over all the nations of the world. And you will remember as you look at the life of Jesus and remember the life of Jesus or as we go through the gospel, you'll see when Jesus teaches, the people comment and they say, never before have we heard someone who teaches with such authority. Look, he even exercises authority over the demonic. And then there's a storm and Jesus calms the storm and they say, who is this man that he has authority even over the wind and the waves? Jesus is claiming it here at the very beginning of John's gospel, and he's going to live that out through his life, showing us who he really is, that he has authority over every language and nation and tribe and tongue, over every people and part of the earth. He rules supreme. It's a title that only Jesus uses for himself. No one else calls Jesus a son of man except him. And it's a title that he will define the content of through the rest of his life. And as his disciples follow him, they will see what that looks like, how that glory, that power, and that authority is used to fulfill and to establish God's kingdom here on earth and the redemption of those who are truly going to become his people. So friends, that's the story of John chapter 1. John introduces us to Jesus in the beginning. In the beginning of John chapter 1 and verses 1 to 18. And then he closes out his chapter by showing us the fullness of who Jesus will become. It's the record of his encounters with his first disciples. And they model for us the invitation that Jesus offered to them to enter into a discipling journey with me. Come and see what it looks like to be with me. And it's as comprehensive a set of descriptions that are designed by God through John to confirm that introduction as the quintessential Lamb of God, God's chosen one, the teacher, the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Israel, and the Son of Man. Jesus, friends, is the Word of God made flesh. He is in very nature God. He came to redeem people from every language and culture, to purify them from sin, to save them from judgment, to redeem them from slavery, and to rule over them as their true God and true King. These things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. Amen. Let's pray together. Worship team, if you guys would come and join me.
Jesus, we thank you for the wonderful opportunity of coming to know you. And perhaps as you're sitting here this morning, you haven't yet discovered Jesus. I want, I want to promise you and assure you that just as Jesus made that invitation to those first men who would become his disciples, and as he, as he invited them to come and see, he makes the same invitation to you this morning. Would you like to know me? Would you like to know more about me? If you would like to meet with Jesus, he says to you, come, come and see. And in your heart, you can just say, Jesus, I want to know you. I want to know more about you. I want to know and understand who you are. And perhaps in that journey, he will lead you to discover that he is everything that we have spoken about this morning. And then there will be a moment for you where you will turn to him and he will forgive you of your sins and wash you clean and adopt you into his family, call you his son or his daughter. That journey can start today. And if you want to begin on that journey, you're welcome to come to speak to myself or to speak to John or to speak with someone that you came with today. We'd love to help you meet Jesus. He would love nothing more than for you to come and see. Jesus, for those of us who have already found you, we want to just confess our adoration this morning. We want to praise and honor you as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus, there is no one like you in all the earth. In the heavens above or the earth below or under the earth, there is no one else who is worthy of worship. There is no one else who is worthy of devotion. You alone are God and King and Lord and Messiah and teacher and Savior and friend. We bless you, Jesus, this morning. We honor your holy name. And we pray, God, help us as we continue to follow you, to better reflect you as much as we can. We love you, Jesus, our King. Amen.